I'd like to uh, call our meeting uh, to order. It is uh, 6.34 uh, p.m. Just checking. Uh, agenda item number two. Uh, we have a new commissioner joining us today, and I would like to take the opportunity, uh, as we've done in the past, to just work away around our circle and give a brief uh, introduction of who you are and uh, what your experience or passion is. And uh, welcome our new member. Uh, so to start, I'm Kale Bining. I work in affordable housing as well as construction. I'm Kyle Vogel. Uh, I own a property management company in town who a good percentage of our properties are affordable housing properties. I'm Karen Patel. I'm a GIS person. I... What's GIS? Geospatial information systems. Okay, just checking. <laughs> yep, I, I map data. So if it's data or a map, I am happy. I'm Marianne Dennison. I'm retired from, um, from a nonprofit affordable housing developer. I'm Becky Reedus, and I'm a retired nonprofit director from Community Crisis Services and Food Bank. Two years I've been. I'm Denise Seche, um, and I'm new. And um, I teach math and computer science at the University of Iowa, and I also own properties, and um, and I'm a foster parent. Yeah, cool. cool. I'm Carol Croats, and I am, in a sense, retired from nonprofit administration um, as executive director, and um, I also. Um, I'm sorry, sometimes I lose my train of thought. Um, anyway, I worked for, for many years in, in that, and um, I've been on the commission for a couple years, I guess. Uh, I'm James Pierce. I'm a legal assistant at a law firm here in Iowa City. I've served on a couple city commissions, and I've also been on the board of a, a affordable housing provider. Erica Coopley, Neighborhood Services Coordinator, I'm staff. Brianna Tool. I'm a planner here at the city. Uh, agenda item number three, uh, the considerations of the meeting minutes from the October 19th meeting. Are there any edits or corrections to the minutes from the October 19th HDDC meeting? I would just like to say that whoever wrote these minutes did a wonderful job and should be commended. It's an awful lot of information and I just thought it read really well and really conveyed what happened. So um, so whoever is responsible for that, I, I appreciate that. Want a motion? May have a motion to approve the October 19th, uh, 23 HDDC minutes. Moved. Second. Second. All in favor say aye. 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 Any opposed? Motion passes. Uh, item number four, uh, public comment of items not in the agenda. Are there any public comments for items not in the agenda? So if there are no public comments, uh, up next, agenda item number five. I would like to welcome uh, shelter House to provide an overview of the street outreach program. Good evening. Is this on? Yep. 
Um, I'm Christy Canganelli, Executive Director of Shelter House, and I'm joined here um, by Aaron Sullivan, Housing Services Director, and Sam Brooks, who is our Outreach uh, Specialist, Outreach Services Specialist. Um, and we're here this evening to talk about street outreach services. And um, first of all, I'd just like to say thank you for this opportunity to speak with you this evening. And we hope to be able to uh, just really have a conversation with you about our services and um, the impact that we're seeing, the changes um, that we're noticing, and have a conversation with you that responds to the questions that just have, I think, come up over time. Um, so first of all, just to kind of contextualize how we started Street Outreach Services, um, we began in partnership with the City of Iowa City, I think it was the spring of 2021. So this is a relatively new service that has been offered in our community. We had long wanted to be able to provide Street Outreach Services, um, but just did not have the capacity to do that, financial capacity. And in partnership with the City of Iowa City, uh, they dedicate, um, right now it's about $35,000 annually to uh, this work. We're able to leverage some additional federal funding that is available for shelter operations and an allowable use is street outreach services to be able to fund uh, one full-time uh, employee, Sam, and provide some supports, resource materials, supplies, um, and a, a vehicle for his dedicated use um, to be able to meet the needs of, of our community. Um, the primary um, scope of work really is happening in Iowa City, although Sam is available to respond to concerns that are happening throughout Johnson County. Um, but I'll let him talk about kind of that dedicated use, but it really is significantly uh, focused on the Iowa City area. Um, with that, I think that we're going to go straight to Sam because he's got all of the, the details and can really speak to um, what we're doing best. Um, yeah, so thanks for having us. Again, my name's Sam. Uh, can you guys hear me? No. Yep. Okay. Um, so uh, I'll start by talking about the approach and kind of our philosophy behind street outreach. Um, I think it's uh, critical that, you know, when we're working with our community's most vulnerable members uh, to take into consideration things, uh, the ways that we're engaging with them and the way that we're building trust and rapport uh, for folks that have historically been failed by most of our larger institutions in some way or another. Um, so the first step of street outreach and engagement is the engagement portion. Um, a lot of the folks who are experiencing unsheltered homelessness have been uh, staying outside for um, a significant amount of time. Uh, when I was looking at uh, some of the numbers, about a quarter of the uh, folks who are engaged in, in street outreach are defined as chronically homeless, which is um, one year or more in a place not meant for habitation, which is your car <coughs> under uh, a bridge, on the street, in a tent, an abandoned building, a parking garage, uh, many places, and have a diagnosed disability. So those are two really important factors. Um, that we look at when we're working with this population because we understand um, how vulnerable things are. So um, my initial uh, goal is to build rapport through a mutually respectful relationship between myself and um, the person who is experiencing homelessness so that 
as we're working together, whatever their identified goals are, um, we can then work together to accomplish those goals, to navigate different systems, um, frankly, uh, make sure that they can survive staying outside, and then make it to the ultimate goal of being housed permanently, stably, with wraparound services so that they can end their experience of homelessness. Um, once engagement looks different for a lot of people. Um, there's one individual who, you know, I've been working with now for my entire time in street outreach who, um, for the first year that I was in the position, he didn't speak to me, he barked at me, uh, and we didn't talk, and um, it was really, I mean, uh, when Aaron and I would talk about ways that we can engage that were um, client-driven, everything I do is voluntary, ways that we can then provide um, services to this person. It, a lot of it was just about existing in the same space as them in a you know, uh, very, um, I don't know, casual way until uh, th there was enough comfort that we could then progress to talking about very casual things. Um, there are all kinds of, of different manner stories like that. Um, this individual now, you know, we meet every Friday and we chat a lot about uh, grappling mostly, but that's what he chose to talk about. Um, and but what we've is all that? grappling, like wrestling and jujitsu, oh, yeah, like martial okay. arts is what he loves to talk about. Okay. Um, but we've also been able to bring a, um, a medical provider out to come and give him a physical at a place he was comfortable at. Um, so there are. Uh, I don't know, that's, that's kind of the general um, initial engagement so that we can then refer to different providers in the community. Um, a lot of what street outreach is is collaborating with different community partners, different service providers, um, city staff, different city departments to help this person navigate all of these systems in the safest um, and uh, least, uh, have the least conflict, have the least interaction with emergency services, the least as as uh, reduced law enforcement contact and unnecessary arrests, um, unnecessary like ambulance trips and and uh, I don't know, that's kind of part of the collaboration of street outreach and and the things that go into a, a single person's experience of you know being outside for a long period of time. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of the general overview. Um, there, are, I don't know if Aaron, you have anything that yeah. I'm. No, I'll just kind of echo what you. Was, it's a very delicate relationship. I think what um, Sam is kind of highlighting is that there are a group of individuals in our community that do not engage with services unless absolutely necessary. Um, and then there are individuals who are experiencing homelessness who, who know the resources, are utilizing the resources, and just have a lot of barriers to um, potentially getting permanently housed. And so Sam, right, has to kind of balance his time between those individuals who are seeking him out um, to kind of touch base, have a contact, make sure that like, because we talk a lot about Sam's role kind of 
kind of circles the providers and the um, and the person experiencing homelessness to just make sure that they continue to connect. We know how they know how to communicate with one another. Um, if they don't have a phone, where to, maybe they can find or mm -hmm. where the business hours that they can reach some uh, a provider at. Um, but really, Sam spends um, and we want him to spend more time really engaging with those individuals who are not kind of in, um, seeking out those services. And so that example of the individual that he gave, right, that, that is somebody who has never utilized shelter, winter shelter, um, and, and, and it's a delicate relationship that we are continuing to just kind of um, navigate to figure out how to build that trust so that way the hope is that he this individual will move into housing um, and and um, and you know I think what Sam didn't um, mention is that 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 medical provider that came out and saw them right today um, it was really helpful we learned some things we learned that he has some real um, significant vision issues while at the same time that individual got pretty scared um, didn't want to provide his name and really kind of disappeared for mm -hmm. weeks afterwards where Sam couldn't locate him um, just because of that kind of push of that engagement and so I, we just kind of share that story and that at this situation to know that um, there are many individuals in our community who are experiencing homelessness and know how to access resources and and do so every day and then there are individuals in our community who are not. And so this street outreach position is, is essential in reaching those individuals um, who, are, who are out there in our community and have been for, for a long period of time, um, probably decades, mm -hmm. who just um, are, um, are not engaging. And, and we want to make sure that they know that there are resources, know, uh, provide some of those life-saving resources to them, right? So um, blankets and tents and things like that. Um, so that way, and um, also be able to begin that relationship. Yeah. So, Sam, do you want to talk a little bit about the outcomes that we're yeah. seeing with the people that we've worked with? Yeah, um, as far as um, numbers goes, we have, in the last year, it was roughly 190 uh, individuals who were enrolled in street outreach um, throughout the year. Um, 89 of those were then moved into permanent housing from the street either by accessing shelter eventually or straight from the street to housing. Um, I think, yeah, I, don't, I mean, uh, that's probably the big number that, that is the outcome that we look at, right? Is the goal is to end the person's experience of homelessness. Um, and for the most part, you know, our, that's, the rate at which we can do it so far. Yeah. Can I ask a question? Um, so for somebody who's who's unhoused and you said that they're moving into housing mm -hmm. or into shelter, um, especially housing, where if if they are experiencing a financial barrier, how is that resolved? Yeah. So I don't. Um, so there's a system in our community and and across the state called coordinated entry. Um, and so when, when Sam is talking about somebody moving into housing, what that means is that they are enrolled into coordinated entry, which is a, um, essentially there's no wrong door. Any human service provider in the community could put somebody into coordinated entry. And on a weekly basis, we have a meeting with um, all of these different human service providers to determine which 
um, housing intervention or which housing program would be best for that individual based on their kind of needs. So um, they could be, they might have a Section 8 voucher and they just need assistance with a, um, with a security deposit. Community has a program where they could pay security deposit. Um, Shelter House has a program called Rapid Rehousing that provides a security deposit and rental assistance. Um, so really those providers are all sitting at a table, virtual table, because we do it online, um, and uh, we are pulling those individuals for that program and then that program is helping them move into housing and providing whatever resources they might need, financial assistance, case management, um, uh, accessing other mainstream uh, resources such as like food stamps, Medicaid, things like that. So I'm guessing, um the ultimate goal of the individual as well as the program would be for for them to be self-sufficient and feel that experience of I can I can with some help though I can I can be self-sufficient do you know what I mean is that a goal it, it can be a goal so each individual's um, kind of plan is is uh, or goal plan is created and um, some individuals who maybe are experiencing short-term experience of homelessness um, who are going into a rapid rehousing type of program then yes they probably will live independently in the community you know uh, on their own um, you know, the individuals that Sam is working with, I would anticipate that most of those individuals will receive wraparound services for a pretty significant amount of yeah. time. Um, you know, there's a reason people are outside for a long period of time. A big piece of that is housing related um, and the housing affordability. Um, but there's also other kind of mental health, physical health, and substance use disorders that need people need support to live in, in housing. Yeah. So the, I'd say the goal isn't necessarily to live, uh, to be self-sufficient in so much as it is to be as independent as possible. And so mm -hmm. that looks different for, for everyone. Mm -hmm. So really trying to weave together the different services and resources that exist for people to help them to live as independently as possible in housing and to retain that housing successfully. So, and I just wanted to clarify out of the 90 people, the 90 out of what it was, 190? 100. So yeah. we're at about 50% of those individuals that were engaged through street outreach. So this is individuals who have been living out on the streets, unsheltered, high uh, incidence of disability, co-occurring disabilities. 75% <clears throat> enrolled and have, have a disability that is diagnosed. Yeah. And often are co-occurring, and these are any combination of uh, serious mental illness, substance use, intellectual disability, brain injury, and then physical disabilities, um, and years of homelessness that we're able to successfully get into housing. Mm -hmm. And the conduit of going through shelter, that we don't consider that a, um, a housing placement. That's mm -hmm. just people can mm -hmm. go either through shelter to housing or straight from the street to housing. Mm -hmm. It was just that nuance I wanted to clarify. So. So, and then there's there's the matter of just safety. Yeah. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, when I was working, we had a, I I just knew this man who mm -hmm. was chronically homeless and finally received an apartment and it was furnished, but um, he never slept in the bed because he ne he hadn't slept in a bed for so many years that he didn't feel comfortable, so he just slept on the floor all the time, even though he had a bed. 
was say, so. when we op first opened Cross Park Place, the 24-unit apartment complex uh -huh. on, on Cross Park Avenue, um, those are individuals who were sleeping outside for years mm -hmm. in our community, and one of the individuals there slept on the bench in front of our building for probably a month um, when he first moved in, just because he, he, he was uncomfortable sleeping inside. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do a lot of the individuals that you're working with, Sam, um, go to either the 501 or Cross Park Place? Is that, um, I mean, what's your most direct route, I guess, or, you know, yeah, housing? Well, when we have housing opportunities, yeah, yeah Cross Park, 24 units, fully occupied. 501, we opened 36 units in June of last year, and I think by, was it August? September, yeah. we were at capacity. We were fully utilized, the 36 units there. So once those are full, unless a unit turns over, and the primary reason that we're seeing units turn over is really uh, due to death of our tenants. Um, so it doesn't, our units don't turn over very much. Then we're looking for units out in the community, and that means to find landlords that are willing to work with us. Um, through the course of the pandemic and in the response to the pandemic, there have been some very specialized additional small amounts of housing choice vouchers that have been made available, mainstream vouchers, emergency housing vouchers, and now I think seven stability vouchers. I mean, these are the minuscule numbers of additional resources that we're trying to, to manage. Um, prioritizing these different vouchers for these this particular population through coordinated entry has been an imperative, which means that they get that housing subsidy as a resource because they don't have income or they have very extremely limited income when we're able to help them secure different mainstream benefits that they may qualify for. That was working until uh, we lost that protection for individuals presenting a housing choice voucher as a form of payment for rent, which occurred, I think, sometime in 2022. And we're now experiencing a real, you know, an additional barrier even for those individuals who are so disabled have a voucher, which is a precious resource in our world, and are not able to use it as a form of payment for rent mm -hmm. to be able to rent in our community um, because landlords are now requiring that these individuals demonstrate that they have 300% of the rent in cash income. Wait a minute, really? Yeah. Yeah. Irrespective of whether or not they have a voucher. So if we have a single person who's been on the street for decades, qualifies, you know, has multiple part. disabilities, has a voucher in hand, and a landlord who says, sure, I'll rent to you, but show me, this. my unit is $800. You show me that you have $2,400 in income, and you can rent. Yeah. So it's, it's a, a whole first, new. The first I heard of that um, was, was down in Florida about four years ago, and which blew my mind, because you know the minimum wage as it is up here is still $7.25 or $7.50 an hour. So, so that means that literally people who are low income can't qualify. I mean, mm -hmm. to make that kind of money is very, very um, difficult. So, so there's a lot of people who do not even qualify. Um, I, I suspect there's a lot of um, um, games going on, and I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. I mean, people having co-signers and things like that because of it doesn't matter because as long as people are housed, I, you know the famous fires that happened down yeah. by, I, we I think one of the things that 
you know, if it, there's always, you can always see some sort of bright side. One of the things that bothers me is when I hear people say people are homeless because they don't want to, mm -hmm. they want to live outside, they don't want to, to have a home. And I think that demonstrated a little bit that I think there were, if I remember right, there were 17 people who had the vouchers that um, didn't have a place, you know, couldn't qualify for the income levels. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I think that was good. I showed. I think it showed the community a little bit that um, homelessness is is um, it's, it's not as simple as somebody doesn't want to um, be inside. And I and I think that that was a positive at least that came out that, that to educate us a little bit of those hundred and one people that are still that you're still working with. They, I think you kind of answered this question, but I'm going to confirm it. They will not all enter into the winter shelter program, correct? Um, not, not all, but I'd say a majority will. Good. Yeah. Okay. A vet, the vast majority mm -hmm. will. Okay. Yes. We have um, really high utilization of, of winter shelter. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, and it, it also seems, you know, I don't want to. I have a memory, Chrissy, of you talking. Uh, it might have been you were uh, getting funding or doing an update for the 501 project, where we the gap was closing, the need. Yeah. Is that something that you said? And then now we have a, it seems like a wider gap. And so, um, you know, not that you aren't running as fast, but, but the, the need is, is growing a, um, a lot quicker, and so. How do, how do we, I mean, what do we have to continue to do, you know, um, in order to meet that need or, and or prevent it from growing even bigger? Yeah, so I remember saying that. <laughs> <laughs> Good, because yeah. that stuck with me for a long time because yeah. I thought, how fortunate we are to have such an agency, you know, that really has, you know, closed in on that gap for us. But I'm not sure you got to even go back and celebrate before the gap got started growing. Again. No, but <laughs> what was, when was that? 2021? Huh? No, I think as we were going into even the um, 501. 501. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. I think a couple of things is that, and we talk about this a fair amount. It comes up in our board meetings um, and, and within team meetings that. It, it's hard to recognize the things that, that we're not seeing or to acknowledge the things that we're not seeing, right? Um, we are seeing an increase, and at least feeling that there is an increase. I'd say we, there is an increase of unsheltered homelessness that we're aware of in our community. There's certainly an increase in demand on our shelter resources. Um, even given that we have implemented homelessness present prevention resources, eviction prevention resources during the, the course of the pandemic and uh, hopefully we'll be able to sustain those after this recovery period and recovery funding ends. So we've prevented hundreds and hundreds of households from entering the homeless response system and experiencing homelessness. I don't even know what it would look like if we didn't have mm -hmm. that. 
We've increased our capacity to provide permanent supportive housing by building some infrastructure with bringing Cross Park Place and uh, 501 online, that's 60 units of permanent supportive housing. And we've increased the capacity to provide that through a scattered site modality by using local landlords and partnerships with these additional housing choice vouchers. I think it's 147 total housing choice vouchers. I finally got that number <laughs> imprinted in my brain. But now there are new things that are happening in and around those new increases in capacity. Um, we were ahead of the curve as far as some other Iowa communities in developing permanent supportive housing and advancing some of these resources. So I believe that we're not seeing the increase to the same degree that communities like Des Moines and Cedar Rapids are seeing the increases even when we correct for population size. And the fact that we have a really major feeder in our community, which is the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics mm -hmm. and the VA healthcare system. And the VA. And the VA. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and they are giving us an, an incredibly complex population to, to work with. And the, we are seeing very significant discharge, increases in discharges and, and um, complexity of issues of people being discharged to the streets. That, that is new. So we're, we're not to where some other municipalities are in our, in our state, but we're definitely not maintaining the ground that I thought that we were achieving. There are other like macro issues that are happening around us. So that change that we just talked about in the protection for housing, losing that protection as uh, being able to um, present a housing choice voucher and have that being used as a source of income, right? That's a, a major hit. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm really surprised by that, and I'm also I'm alarmed and kind of disgusted by it. Yep. I, I preach a lot about how um, people on disability or SSI, you know, that it it they may get to seven hundred or eight hundred dollars a month, and even if they have a voucher, they're spending yep. a significant amount of income. Uh, on rent, and that's if they can find a place because of the price range. Now there's another barrier yeah. that the, landlords yep. are requiring, and I'm just really appalled by that. And that barrier clearly has a disparate impact on uh, veterans, yeah. uh, individuals with disabilities, um, and in so much as there's a correlation with poverty, of course, households of color. So other macro issues that we're seeing, healthcare system. Healthcare system has been overrun, has never recovered. They weren't in great shape when we went into the pandemic and they've been overrun ever since. Our emergency room department, psychiatric inpatient units, out of control. Uh, people that are not getting, um, people who are being discharged in all manner of conditions to the street and to shelter uh, significant changes in the numbers and the complexity of issues that we're seeing and, and receiving from our medical institutions. How do you receive information that somebody's being discharged but they have the special special need of being unhoused? Do They just show up at our door in the yeah. parking lot. I would say that that's something that we have um, improved our communication and relations with the University of Iowa and the VA ED and their hospital, but they're, um, but they, but they know that they are discharging people to homelessness. So their social services department doesn't get involved and kind of help 
the information get transferred and no we've seen a decrease in really the um, social work department within hospitals in general mm -hmm. um, kind of doing the resource navigation work it is um, wow. I, I, they are their individuals coming with right really no referrals not a lot of um, resources that they've been in, enrolled in we I think we're seeing like Medicaid really is the only resource that 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 um, they're coming to shelter with so wow. so there are a number of different reasons why they are on overwhelm yeah um, the resources that used to exist in a continuum of care of like housing placement services residential care facilities gone housing community-based housing providers that are there that on paper look like they should be able to provide ongoing housing and supports for individuals that were cared for have all number of barriers rules in place that prevent people from being able to access those services that again push more people into our shelter and then in line for our permanent supportive housing we have community-based housing providers that sit on vacancies that will not take people that we have referred who qualify for their services and they have barriers that prevent them from accessing. As we have gone to low barrier in Housing First, other people, other entities have become more out of reach. So there are those kinds of system changes within the human services continuum and Department of Health and Human Services continuum. Entities that are paid for every billable unit of service to provide care and housing for people that are finding ways not to. And then we have some really good things that have changed. And by that, I mean some that may be minor, but changes within a criminal justice system. So as our nation has moved towards adopting policies and interventions that are intended to reduce people who are suffering from a mental illness to the criminal justice system. Um, so reducing overexposure to the criminal justice system, primarily meaning incarceration, mm -hmm. right? As some of these interventions and policies have been implemented, and even locally, um, you know, who is positively impacted by that change? Well, it wasn't wealthy people who had uh, mental health issues and were being incarcerated. Their lives haven't changed, really. It's the poor, the poor who were over-incarcerated, who are suffering from mental illness and suffering with mental illness as their main provider, treatment provider, being our uh, criminal justice system prisons. As those individuals are successfully not being incarcerated, where are those very poor individuals landing? We didn't build up our housing system to address the housing needs for these individuals that had been functionally housed, and I say that, it's a bastardized use of the word housed, <laughs> in our jails and our prisons, they're on the street and in our shelters. And um, we're not talking about that, and we're very slow to realize that that positive intention and that positive change is having this very significant impact and changing the world of homeless services and and that too is having an impact on like what we're seeing as far as manifesting is unsheltered homelessness because we're not able to accommodate folks mm -hmm. in our shelters mm -hmm. does that kind of help oh, that was to good. you said there was a pot there were positive <coughs> positive for the people who are incarcerated but not for you what you mean. Well, and really not, you know, I don't know how positive it is for them if they're living in very exposed situations on the streets. Right. Mm -hmm. 
no, I know. know exposed, yeah. re-exposed to trauma, violence, yeah. and no, I understand. Yeah, yeah no, I know. <laughs> it's like you um, expand to meet a growing need, but there's a double-edged sword. The need's growing, <laughs> that's not good. And but you're expanding, it is good, but. Yeah. yeah, it's it's um, it's very depressing. <laughs> it's, well, it's, it's overwhelming because it also, and I know we're here to talk about street outreach, but that is one part, you know, it's a new resource and intervention that's been deployed within this continuum of services that really is intended to create this system, a homeless response system, right? And really part of this move to housing first where we, we are working to end homelessness rapidly, prevent homelessness where possible, and move people to housing um, you know, immediately from the street, right? And, and we look at communities where they have also been successful in deploying this more like homeless response system, and where homelessness is increasing, um, legislatures, policymakers are pointing to housing first as being the cause for creating yeah. mm -hmm. this increase. Right. And it's absolutely not the case. Mm -hmm. We, we can't build ourselves out of this fast enough because we've languished and we, we don't have enough housing opportunities in the market to address the needs of people who are at zero to 30% area median income. Just trying to find those data points and find out what the real gap is um, is difficult and I'm in the middle of trying to figure out what that is. But just as a point of example, Denver, uh, I was there uh, about a month ago it looks very different from just two years ago. There is, there's always been a significant presence of unsheltered homelessness in Denver, but I've never seen it like I saw it to, uh, in October. It, encampments all in downtown areas, very large encampments, and they've done a lot to increase permanent supportive housing opportunities for people. But in the Atlantic, in their Chamber of Commerce, and in their local news reporting, they reported that I think it's 16% of the population of Denver has an income of $20,000 or less. And that housing opportunities that exist in Denver for individuals at $20,000 or less of income, there is a gap of between 70,000 units and 125,000 units based on the way that these different entities calculated what that gap is. How, how, do, we, how do we address that? Until we have, we have until we a variation have lawmakers of that. that care. Right, there's no incentive for politicians. It's, I mean, what's the incentive for yeah, a politician? It, it's really, it's disheartening to see what has become of housing and the expense to be housed and the lagging wages. Um, it, it doesn't even have to do with a federally mandated minimum wage. Just there are places and states and cities that don't pay livable wages. And you know, I remember, what, two, three, four years ago when we started talking about $15 an hour and the whole world was like, oh my God, we can't pay that. That's not even a livable wage anymore. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's above 20 at, at this point to be able to afford the kinds of housing options that there are. I have a question. That was a little bit of soapbox, but I have a question <laughs> um, about about street outreach. So you said you get about thirty-five thousand um, dollars from the city. I'm going to assume that that's par probably part of the ARPA um, money, or is it is it going? This is going to be an ongoing thing. So if you, um, I'm just kind of interested in because um, you worked with the home, the people that had unsheltered. 
um, homeless before. But since Sam and Aaron in the street outreach program, um, what would you say has, how has that increased your success? Or, you know, if you were going to like do a pamphlet for me or a one liner, I mean, what, what, what would you say? Elevator speech. Yeah, yeah, the elevator speech. I mean, what would you say that, it, that it's really done um, for this group of folks? Well, I'll let Sam come up with the elevator pitch, but um, I just, I'll give an example of what Street Outreach has done. So uh, when we opened Cross Park, there, um, it took six months to be able to, from January to June, so um, for the, all the units to be filled. Um, and Chrissy mentioned the um, length of time that it took to fill the 501 units, and that is almost uh, entirely because of street outreach, because the street outreach um, the specialist was out, um, engaging with those individuals, was readying them for housing. So the amount of work that Sam does in terms of helping people gather those essential documents, like a, a birth certificate, a social security card, an ID, um, and then also having those conversations of like, okay, let's, like, how do you, how, how do you get into an apartment, right? Oh, we should go look at it. We have, you know, there's gonna be these things that you're gonna have to sign, really talking them through that entire process. Um, that was essential in moving very quickly and getting people housed um, and moving them into 501. So, you know, that was like a kind of a really like micro example of like how street outreach benefited, like was a huge benefit in that instance to moving people quickly into housing when it became available. Um, and obviously there was multiple units available in this instance and, and Sam kind of has the challenge now of it's kind of finding those individual units, but what would you say is? And that's where I think it's kind of shifted to now when there are, uh, there's not this uh, pool of units available is to create um, a support network and that weave of services that Chrissy is talking about in the interim when somebody has um, engaged in services and started to get to a place where they're ready for housing when housing is available, creating a support network in the interim so that again they can be safe they can provide them um, with survival items and help them interact in a healthier way with the rest of the community um, and I mean frankly I mean because of street outreach I think we know just about every single person mm -hmm. in our community um, there's I mean I guess I you know you don't know who you don't know but <laughs> um, we're pretty confident that, you know, in some form or another, um, we know the majority of people who are living unsheltered in our community where um, before I, I, you know, I think it was sporadic here and there and or I can't say for sure, but um, that level of like uh, engagement and, and yeah, frankly, just having that. Um, support in the long term is then what like when you, these you meet them at their place of need yeah, yeah. and it's doing exactly yeah. And, yeah. and even if the it's a very small community meaning um word travels fast and so what what uh sam has uh, experienced right is that somebody will meet somebody who's experiencing homelessness and they'll be like hey do you know sam and they say no they're 
that person is seeking out mm. Sam, calling Sam to get them him connected with that individual. Because of the partnerships that we now have with the city where we meet on a monthly basis with like numerous departments um, and even outside of the city. I mean, we've had now meetings with the DNR, which mm. I, you know, and, and lots of different um, other entities in our community that who all know of now street outreach, know of Sam, have his number. And so when there is somebody who, whether they're in town um, for one night because they were at the bus stop and they're leaving town again, or they are somebody who's been in our community and just has kind of been in places that we don't frequent, um, there are resources or there are um, clear partnerships that can reach out to Sam and or get him connected with that individual. And I think that's a real, that's, that's probably one of the biggest changes um, is having a centralized person mm -hmm. that everybody knows and all these um, different entities and departments know to say I mean even at this point like the University of Iowa different kind of sports complex know mm -hmm. of Sam and his his uh, you know what his role is because um, and and they are able to reach out to him that's very cool you know I was just talking with Brianna today about this zero to thirty percent that you were that you mentioned and i just have to believe that there's something that we can do to help start a process as long as it may take to find some sort of solution to this because it seems to me like i feel it personally i fall in that category uh, i feel it personally it it feels like iowa city has become an exclusive place to live and that sometimes I feel like I'm not wanted because I can only afford X amount of rent and that's even with assistance and I used to be really ashamed that I had to have help but I'm not anymore and I'm not embarrassed anymore it's just it's what it is because of my disabilities but there's got to be something that we can do because I know the city has a commitment to finding affordable to to having affordable housing for people in a place where they want to live. I think I read that someplace not too long ago. And I just have to think that um, somebody, somebody who has a little bit of power um, maybe can start quantifying um, how many people this actually involves. Um, and trying to work out solutions to find this. I'm just really committed to that, and I just, I'm saddened to hear about the people that you work with who have the vouchers and still can't find a place. Very disheartening. So I have a couple questions that I have, um, and maybe I missed it, but is that voucher change, was that a federal law change? Was that a state law change? Was that just something that's happened state. organically with landlords or? It's a state. So Iowa City, Cedar Rapids, and Des Moines all had a local ordinance in place that protected the use of a housing choice voucher as a form of income. So okay. protected households that were presenting that right. And it was, was it in 2022? It's a blur. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I can't remember when I the legislature so. made the decision to remove that, uh, the ability of municipalities to have that local gotcha. control, okay. which is 
you know, very interesting given the history of Iowa. And so, it, so it's part of that larger conversation of the state removing mm -hmm. and local they, control. From they had a rollout period um, where, like, it, it didn't go into place until a certain time, I think, in last year. And we've definitely seen the impact. Yeah. It was very disappointing to learn that it was a local uh, landlord and high-profile individual in our community that led that campaign that campaigned the legislature and led that effort for that policy change. My, my, my other question was something that you said earlier has been kind of marinating in my brain, which is that the turnover you see in the two particular complexes that you've developed, the largest cause of turnover is death. In the permanent support. In the per and I just wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that, because that struck me as. Yeah, Erin, do you want to? Yeah. Um, so. I think that there's a couple. So Cross Park Place, we saw um, um, any number is a good number, but like a, a good number of individuals who passed away within the first kind of 18 months of that program. I think that um, there's a couple reasons. Uh, one is the population who live at Cross Park are definitely um, at this point they're aging in place. They're they're an older um, uh, have demographics, I would say, um, you know, we're seeing individuals more from 60 to 80, um, just based on kind of the length of the life, the length of time, and also the eligibility requirements for that um, program at the time, were individuals who were frequent users of our systems. Um, and so that were, those were individuals who had pretty significant healthcare costs. Mm. Um, and so those were individuals that were already, what we were seeing from kind of the length of time living outside, right, their, their frailty and their um, general health, um, and then, um, and just kind of then ongoing kind of chronic health conditions. Um, I think that there's also this, which is not necessarily like proven medically, but there's this, um, you know, you watch people who have kind of protected themselves for really long amounts of time outside. So they've had to survive, they've, they're getting their basic needs met on a daily basis, and that's really it. Um, and, and they're really kind of, um, only, you know, they're going to the ED when it's absolutely necessary, and that's and um, otherwise their their tolerances to for themselves and how to take care of themselves are pretty high. Um, and then you watch people move into housing, and they start to kind of let that guard down a little bit. They start to engage in healthcare, um, which is great. It's, those are all really positive things. Um, but the body doesn't have to protect themselves as as strongly as they were outside. Um, and so, you know, there. I, I would, it would be really interesting to see what kind of studies are out there, or when if there, as permanent supported housing continues to like. Um, be uh, evidence-based practice with long-term, you know, uh, results and, and outcomes to look at what that data looks like. Um, but that is just anecdotally what I am seeing as um, somebody who is watching these individuals kind of um, their bodies just not be able to handle um, the amount of trauma that they've experienced outside for the length of time that they have. So when somebody goes into permanent supportive housing, they leave, obviously, if, if they die, but incarcerated. Uh, what are, are there any other reasons like they would um, leave, and, and is, is that rate relatively low? I mean, you don't have to go through them, but otherwise they can stay if 
forever. They have they a lease the that's rules renewable. Mm -hmm. It doesn't look like it, it looks like a lease like anybody else would have. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's one of the yeah. foundations. We've had a small number of people who have left housing. They've the, the terminology in HUD is moved on or moving on. They've been able to take that uh, project-based voucher and move it into um, what's the just a, a voucher, voucher that moves voucher. With, with them mm -hmm. um, and move out into housing in the community or locate closer to family. Mm -hmm. um, and we consider those really successful exits. Right. Mm -hmm. um, there have been a very small number of individuals that have had pre-existing criminal records mm -hmm. and have been arrested, gone to yeah. jail. Yeah. And then kind of there's thing. individuals yeah. who need a higher level of care. Yeah. Um, so with that aging in place, potentially need to just have more in-home supports that we can't provide and, mm -hmm. and we'll go to a higher level of care. And I'd say that's where we're struggling <coughs> now, is seeing more people that have higher needs than really permanent supportive housing was ever intended to address and need 24 seven mm -hmm on contact care and those resources do not exist anymore well then that's the other thing i was going to say too is that like I'm, I'm glad that you alluded to the fact that the people you're seeing are like so much higher need because that's something that <clears throat> i even saw a few years ago when i was on the board of affordable housing provider people would come to us but we would say like we can't meet your needs we would maybe be affordable based on a voucher, but we can't meet all of the other non-financial needs yeah. that you have. And I think that's the struggle that we've seen a big increase in the last few years. It's like being able to afford the rent is like not the only problem. The vulnerability of the individuals that we are serving um, and, and not just based on their physical abilities um, is significantly increased. I mean, um, it is really challenging to watch and uh, witness like some of the um, the limitations to our services based on the individuals who we are in our buildings um, because um, and and as Chrissy mentioned right um, it has a lot to do with the decrease in just the um, institution beds available in our state um, and so when you watch um, entities <coughs> have to decrease their beds from 54 to 16 all because of like um, settings rules that the state is putting out right that's saying like you need to have certain ratios and we don't want too many people um, with disabilities living in the same space together um, and and that impacts where people can stay, right? And so there are all really good reasons for why the state has, you know, limits maybe the number of people who can live in a in a building together. But whatever we, instead of, we're just reducing the number of beds, we're not adding any anywhere else, right? And I think one of the things that also we saw is so you have this kind of a next phase of kind of deinstitutionalization, right? Where we're closing these beds, but we're not providing any infrastructure to the community-based services um, within those HAB homes and within those other kind of residential community settings to be able for not just in terms of the number of beds, but also the the training that the staff in those buildings need, right? And then on top of it, you have a pandemic that like completely wipes out the workforce um, that then is now needing to be rebuilt and retrained. And so though you already were at a place where your workforce um, needed to increase their skill and now you're even lower because you're having to retrain individuals right from the beginning. And so, you know, 
we could sit here and talk probably for another hour of all of the examples of individuals that you're talking about whose needs are way beyond the scope of services in a shelter and even in a permanent supported housing building. Um, but we are doing what we can yeah. um, because they have nowhere else to go. Like these are not individuals who we can say, our, your needs are too high, we'll see you later, because they're just gonna be in the building right next door, um, which is our services, right? Or they're gonna be in the building across the street in winter shelter, or they're gonna be engaging with Sam, right? So like, no matter where they are in our community, we're, we're, we're serving them, and we, that's our mission too. I just have one more question for Sam. Um, do you anticipate that um, through the people that that you work with that you've that you've met that there will be some who won't want to go into the winter housing the winter shelter they would rather stay where they are yeah there's a small number of people who um, <clears throat> stay outside every year um, the third weekend in January that nationally there's a point in time count that um, homeless response services all participate in mm -hmm. um, and so that's something because it's the time of year where there are the most shelter emergency beds available, um, you're able to then like accurately count the number of people who spend the entire winter outside. What can you do to help those folks? We provide, um, we provide quite a bit of survival items, um, tents, sleeping bags, hand warmers, gloves on an ongoing basis. Those are all things that um, as you use them, you're gonna need more consistently to make it through an Iowa winter. Um, heaters, propane, uh, whatever that person has identified as a way to um, uh, survive through the winter. You can go on their website and look at their yeah. Amazon wish list. Our, what, our, our street count in Johnson County has stayed pretty much between 10 to 15 people mm -hmm. during on that last Wednesday in, Jan, in January. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. That's very informative. Mm -hmm. You have a great job, Sam. I hope you like it a lot. I just I think you'll come no, stay. Thank you. Me too. <laughs> yes, please do. Yeah, and just as any, I mean, so Sam, um, you know, if you have any other questions, I think Sam is a great, or if there's individuals or a business owner or a property owner that has concerns about somebody, you know, make sh I would always just refer them to Sam so that way he can make sure that there's that resource going out um, and just connecting with them. So. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank you. Very, very informational. I wish I'd like to take these. Oh, they're pointed to us. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can read them. I, I can read them. <laughs> <laughs> so we know we're reading them. We're signed. Um, we still do have quite a bit to get through, but um, on to agenda item number six. Uh, tonight we're considering a recommendation to uh, revise the aid to agency definition and eligibility as we've uh, previously discussed. All right, so this item is um, kind of a result of a question that came up last year. Um, so we, last year during the legacy funding, there are two agencies that are legacies that were not awarded funds initially by HCDC. And, um, HCDC expressed that they wanted them to be able to apply for the emerging funds at that point. However, we learned that because of a resolution that's in place, they were not eligible. And so there's still this, this um, 
proposal addresses the one agency that um, is not funded with legacy agencies, but as it sits, is still not eligible for emerging agencies. So we, we propose revising the regulations and um, to allow their eligibility. Um, and then as we did that, we just kind of cleaned up some of the language to look to read as we're currently um, offering the program. The previous resolution for emerging agencies was done in 2018, and that was prior to some of the big changes to the program that took place in about 2020 with our consolidated plan. Um, the consolidated plan didn't really address the emerging agencies. So what we're proposing is to, um, if, if a legacy um, is not funded through the legacy process, they would still be eligible for emerging. The agency that would be, that kind of the only one that fits this category right now is community and family resources. Um, we didn't make any other substantial changes to the, the definitions that are different from how we're operating the program now, just some clarifications. Um, I do want to note that this isn't the subcommittee's work. That's kind of a separate process you'll hear a little bit more about, and we'll hear, we'll, we'll take changes through um, probably in January or later, um, result of that process. This is just brought forward now because we have the emerging agency funding round, and so we want to know if HDC wants to allow the agency to apply for emerging agencies, and if, if these changes look okay, um, then we would take that to council. Would it, would it be um, anybody, any legacy agency that doesn't receive aid to agency funds is eligible to ap apply? That's what we're saying for emerging agency funds. Yes. Yes. So, okay. I mean, so we had a definition of um, emerging agencies that from the resolution um, that's in your packet. But so now it's going to be any nonprofit that's not receiving legacy funding in a given year, and they have to be a 501c3 in good standing as well. So legacy agencies aren't eligible for emerging funds, um, but a legacy that's not receiving the funding would be eligible. That would have been helpful last year. I don't have a problem with it. I, I, my, I don't think that that emerging agency funds title, name, label, whatever, makes a lot of sense. But I don't have, I don't have a problem with them being able to tap that pool of funds. In fact, there's been some time in the past couple of years it felt like we didn't give as much money away as we could have. Maybe there was available money. So, yeah, I don't have a problem with it. So we can do up to 5% of the AT agency budget for emerging agencies. Um, the, the name was kind of derived to be intended for new agencies, but then as the process evolved and we established the actual legacies, then we, we realized that there was groups that weren't really fitting in either category, so it kind of <coughs> became the catch-all for anyone who wasn't a legacy. Um, so that has changed a little bit, and we're, we're open to name suggestions anytime. I, I think I, we, uh, might, we might tackle that a little bit in subcommittee. Sure. I mean, not coming up with names, but just making a recommendation that that's something that needs to be addressed in the future. But I'm not sure what will happen. I just want to make sure that we, as the reviewing body that recommends to the council, do our due diligence so that, I mean, I guess my question is, as staff who for the emergency, I'm sorry, my voice is terrible. The emergency, emerging agency, you receive the ongoing 
reports or whatever. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, we need to know if you have any concerns about any agency that's received money. Because, you know, we, we see the applications, we do the recommendations, and then that's it. I mean, they don't get a lot of money, but um, I think it really behooves us to say, you know, we have, we believe that these applications are worthy and we've, we've, we know what we're talking about and take it to council. Yeah, so so, but any, otherwise, I don't have any problems with this. Any concerns about um, maybe an eligibility or their compliance, we would put in the staff notes um, okay. when, when you guys review okay. that. So. I would also be in favor of the revision. revision. <coughs> you need a motion? Does anybody need a motion? I make a motion to accept the recommendations for changes as proposed by staff. Second. All in favor say aye. 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 Any opposed? Motion carried. Uh, agenda item number seven, uh, the consideration of approval of the FY25 uh, application materials. So I have a question about the emergency. Oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I kept doing that today on the phone, saying emergency instead of emergency. emergency. So with what we just recommended, um, the emerging agencies, the definition and eligibility is they must be a 501c3. Why then on the application does it say you could say you're a public for profit, faith-based, chodo, other? Are you looking at the emerging application or the CDBG and home? I think I'm looking at the, I'm pretty sure I'm looking at the, yeah, I'm looking at the emerging, emerging. Yeah. It's number two. Okay. Oh. Right? Mine the wrong one. It's this one. Yeah, we could probably update that. Yeah, we'll update it. And if you have any other changes to either application, we'll make the final edits and they are posted online. So okay. we have to go through the process to do the online application anyway, so that's easy to fix. And then I also have a comment on the home and CDBG application. Of course for mainly the scoring criteria. Um, on number five for the scoring, cri scoring criteria, 76% um, to 99% leveraging of funds, that's a, that's a lot. For basically how much, you know, I don't know, I, I mean that's just my, these are just comments. I think overall it looks really good. Some, it's of, these, up to you some guys. of these things, just so people who know me are going to understand that I'm going to bring up the same stuff every year until stuff gets changed. But anyway. Sure. <laughs> we did not change the scoring criteria from last year, but I will say when we did change it the year before, it took a lot of, it used to be that that leverage question was such a huge portion of the scoring. It really swayed it if you didn't have a large amount of leverage. And I think last year it did help to, with the distribution of the scoring, I think it took a little bit of weight away from that one question. Well, and I think some, some other things can balance that out if you if the application is really good and then in number seven I think if if we see an application and we get to number seven and the agency does not have the resources or fiscal capacity to complete the project I wouldn't give them any money <laughs> I mean if and they don't get any points but still they could score pretty well I mean that's pretty that's pretty serious 
in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So and are you suggesting a change from like uh, A and D, a 20 or a zero? They get a zero on that or it knocks their application out of consideration? Well, I'm just, I'm just saying for me personally. If, no, I think it makes sense. If I thought that was a zero, just so you all know, I'm going to recommend they don't get any money. Mm -hmm. But you guys can do, you know, I mean, it's kind of consensus building. And then this is the one that I bring up every year since I've been on the commission, which is under part three, number eight. <laughs> so what income are you targeting? My whole thing is that these are federal funds. The federal government has a the regulations that everybody has to follow. Complying with federal regulations can be very, very uh, time-consuming. Onerous, yeah. Why does the city put more regulations on top of what the federal regulations already are? Everybody has to be under 80% for CDBG. For home funds, there is a formula that the federal government gives the applicant for, for instance, rental housing. And these are more restrictive. So for instance, and I say this every year, I know, but if, if there's an affordable housing provider <clears throat> that has a rental unit available and the, the city said that ha the person that moves into that house has to be under 30% under area median income and you get a family that comes in and applies and they make $2 over the 30% AMI and you don't have another place for them, you have to tell them that they make too much money, that they don't qualify. But, they, but they're between 30 and 50, 31 and 50. So you could house that family. But for this, you know, I mean, it just doesn't seem like I, if people are fine with it, I'm okay too, but it's just adding more regulations on top of what they're federally required to do. So, but we did this last year. Yeah, I think and I'm we following changed what you're it a little saying. bit, but not enough. I think some of the hard part is using one application and one scoring criteria to do housing and public facilities projects. Sometimes that's a hard combination to have something that fits both. If you had a perfect world, what would that question look like? Is everybody that you're going to serve under 80% or do you, <clears throat> are you aware of the, um, the home program regulations, especially for rental? Because if you get a home application for home ownership, more than likely, it's going to be between 50 and 80. Yeah. But for the rental, if there's so many units, then so many have to be below 60. Right? If it's like five, if you do five home units for rental, they all have to be under 60. Or you can have one under 80. I mean, I can't remember the, the whole formula, but there's a formula. Mm-hmm. So are you suggesting that a question, that question could be what primary or, uh, yeah, what primary percent of median income person are under 80%? I'm just saying, I mean, how would you reward the that application going to follow the federal, what are the federal regs for that? I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I don't know how to reword it. I'm just saying my question is, and this has been going on for, a long time since the home program started and the city got home funds. They're adding more stringent regulations than the federal government requires. 
And I, my base, basic question is why? I think this one, I mean, it really depends on how people submit their applications. Like this one is really just helping us score and determine who the project is serving. But anecdotally, like some of the most recent projects we've done are just at the max of 60%. So like if someone's applying and they're just saying, we're gonna serve someone at 60%, not all of them have that preference category of 30% AMI anymore, but I have seen that quite a bit in past projects. But if you're gonna do a rental project, mm -hmm. And you want to make sure you can house everybody that you're gonna house. Mm -hmm. You you pick 51 to 60, so right. you only get 10 points. But in reality, you may be serving everybody at under 30. Right. But if you if you restrict yourself, everybody's chasing points on these applications. Right. I hope they are. Um, you know, that's you lose you lose 10 points. Mm -hmm. I think some of the root of this was the city steps, isn't it? incentivizing the zero to 30 percent mm -hmm. so maybe some of that coming up next year with the new city steps plan we could definitely okay. look at that but i'm open and to it, changing it's, it it's, been this way for, it's up to the commission it's to always, yeah. how you guys it's okay keep bringing it up it's always <laughs> just been a bugaboo for me and i used to bring it up when i was an applicant and now i can bring it up when i'm a commissioner <laughs> yeah if you guys have suggestions we're happy to take them it's just i don't want to try to figure out something anyway. that maybe isn't quite what you wanted so those are my, otherwise I think the application looks great. Are we ready to take a motion or any other unsaid opinions? May I have a motion to approve the FY25 application materials? So approved, so moved. Second. All in favor say aye. 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 Any opposed? Motion carried. Uh, agenda item number eight, uh, staff and commission updates. Are there any updates? Um, well, I was just gonna give you a, a quick update on the subcommittee. Um, nice report. Thank uh, you for the report. Yeah, we, we had a good meeting. Um, we um, really broke down the application and um, in a nutshell, the biggest changes that I think we're recommending is profile information that the, app, the agencies can do outside of the application process so it reduces that application. And the second area would be um, recommendation that we get, um, that, that the city does not um, purchase, uh, we, we are not, I don't, we don't like the outcomes that, um, and hopefully United Way will get get rid of that portion, do something else, that we, we allow the agencies to, through the application process, indicate how they're gonna measure their program. How do they define success? Yes. And, and that can be very, very simple, and I think that would help us a lot to be, to be able to get that information, because um, some of you may not know that um, if an agency is, has multiple programs and they're getting funding from multiple entities, United Way, Iowa City, Johnson County, Coralville, they're gonna have different outcomes. So their outcomes may not even match what we're giving them money for. So their outcomes might be on mental health where we're giving them money for food assistance. That's one that I can think of. So, so I think it'll help us um, a great deal. So. We have that. Um, we're going to be um, going through some of the rules and such. Um, these are all proposals. So, and uh, we have one, our, another meeting on Monday, and then 
We'll schedule probably one last meeting. I have a timeline from staff to keep me on schedule, <laughs> which I appreciate a lot. Um, so uh, we can make a final report um, to the commission. And the report's going to be recommendations. These are the things that we'd like to, to see um, done. But the um, agencies um, were really engaged. And so if you haven't read through everything, um, I hope that you will, because um, there were some great comments um, in there. And some feedback, I think, for us also to consider um, uh, with regard to the scoring, scoring process um, that they um, they gave us in, in, input on that. So, any questions about any of the information? Okay. I I have something, but it's a request. Um, I noticed that the next meeting is January eighteenth, twenty twenty four. I'm actually having surgery on January seventeenth. Would the commission or the staff um, consider meeting <clears throat> before that? or on the 25th. So meet the Thursday on January 11th or January 25th. Or is, I don't even know if that's possible to do. I don't know either, no one's ever asked. Do you, do you, have you run into that before? I wanna have a meeting sooner. <laughs> I, think, I think it's up to the commission. If everyone is agreeable, we can reschedule. Unless you don't want me here on the 18th. I mean, <laughs> might go faster. What either business are we going to be taking so, care of in January. The uh, report from the subcommittee is going to be mm -hmm. one of them. And to tell you the truth, it would be nice to have Marianne here because she's got that background and expertise um, also. So um, I'm fine with either way. If you did it a little bit earlier, I have to alter that. But that's not a huge deal because we should have, we'll have met probably finally, I think, our final meeting in December, I, I hope. So it shouldn't be a big deal. I remember I feel like we moved meetings on, on the last commission I served on. It was just a matter of like everyone agreed to move the meeting. So, move, you know. I'm okay with the 11th. There's I won't be available the 25th, but. Okay. There's plenty the of time to uh, host a public notice. <laughs> yeah, I'd rather have the 11th. Yeah, 11th would be work for me. That's fine with me. Yeah. Thank you very much. Caleb, are you okay with that? Yeah, either works. Okay. Um, I have just one other update. It's a little bit early for this, but in the packet, I put together a calendar for the FY25 cycle. You guys don't really need to do anything for this until January, but just to kind of start putting some of those times on your radar um, of what HCDC will need to do for that funding cycle when it comes to reviewing the applications, getting your scores in, those kind of things. So just throwing that out there. And then the only other thing I wanted to mention was that we were not planning to do a February meeting this year for HCDC. So we would do the Q&A in writing with the agencies like we did for legacy aid to agencies. And then Erica and I are setting up some time if anyone wants to meet with us one-on-one -on -one, um, to go through scoring or questions for the FY25 round. Um, we'll have time to do that in February instead of having a formal meeting. So that's in the packet for you. I have a question about that. Um, so I think the questions are important uh, and I've shared this with you and maybe the commission before that um, I still, I always have questions, always, that I submit but then I have more questions <laughs> when I review. Um, 
sometimes I think it'd be helpful. Is it possible to have a small work session um, bef before the questions go out where uh, people who want to attend it could attend it where we come up with the questions together? We've all reviewed the application and we come up with the questions. I would just like to see, I guess my goal is to try and find a way to um, have more robust questions um, or, or get all the questions that we need to have answered or try and hit that a little, marker a little bit more carefully. And I don't know if that's possible. Is a work session treated the same at, well, no, as a meeting in terms of public access and notification and all that kind of sure. stuff? I believe if there's a quorum and we're talking about HCDC business, it would be a public meeting. So the difficulty with that would be your timing. If you're meeting January 11th and the Q&A is in February, like, could you, could this be addressed during the January meeting? Like, would it be an option to have? Okay, how about as a secondary proposal that, well, we pro you probably do. I th we submit the questions to you, then do you sit, submit them, you submit them mm -hmm. to us ahead of time. So I don't know if, if I don't know. It, it, it just, I wish <coughs> it was more robust um, and uh, I'm, I'm going to try and do a better job myself at, at reviewing the applications um, rather than just even reading through them but actually reviewing them because that's when I get the questions and then it's too late to answer to ask ask them it's I've missed the window well we didn't we'd encourage anyone that if you want to walk through the applications with staff that's kind of why we set up the like office hours um, especially we have a lot of new commission members just if you want to just walk through applications with us and we can talk through them and maybe that will help you develop your questions as well okay. what I would suggest. and your report really helps me a lot <coughs> oh yeah I love the report yeah. um, in the past has there been good participation and I don't know how you define good um, for the applicants workshops for attendance at those? Yeah, usually we have a pretty good idea of who's gonna apply based on who attends the applicant workshop, so. I'm ready to go. So if we're done with our updates, uh, agenda item number nine is adjournment. May I have a motion to adjourn? So, so moved. Second. 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 All in favor say aye. 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 Any opposed? Everybody. <laughs> <laughs>